Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 20th. This is your host, Anastasia Yuglova. The debate this month at Cato Unbound addresses the question of global governance and just how global it actually should be. The lead essay, authored by Daniel Dresner, is the topic of the podcast today. Daniel is Associate Professor of International Politics at Tufts University's Fletcher School and author of the new book, All Politics is Global, Explaining International Regulatory Regimes. I suppose it's a cliche in political economy circles to say that globalization is transforming governance in a way that constrains the power of individual states. What's your take on this point of view? My take is, like all cliches, there's a small glimmer of truth and much of it is not true. Globalization is transforming global governance mostly by creating a new set of issues that people care about. 20, 30 years ago, the question was about tariffs and about quotas and about capital controls and those sorts of things. What the current era of globalization has done is rendered those sort of border-level barriers moot. But the residual impediments to global integration are regulatory questions. How should labor be treated? How should banks be regulated? What can we read on the internet? What foods are safe to eat? These sorts of things. And different countries come to different conclusions to these questions. And going forward, the topics of global governance have changed in that now it's a question about when you will agree on regulatory standards and when you will not. Your book, All Politics is Global, actually addresses this very topic. What are the conclusions that you reach in the book? Well, yes, it does. The conclusions I draw are several. The first and most important one is that Contrary to people that believe globalization is genuinely transformative, in fact, in determining when these regulations will be coordinated and when they won't, it is still largely a great power world out there. Great powers being defined, in this case, by the internal size of markets, by the consumption power. So in essence, right now, at least up to the present day, it's been a bipolar world under this current era of globalization, with one pole being the United States and the other pole being the European Union. When those two entities agree on coordination, you will have relatively effective global governance. When they do not, you will not. The other actors matter to some extent, but on the whole, they do not determine whether or not there will be effective global governance. And that is characteristic of the pattern of global regulatory coordination that we've seen in this century, the 21st century? I think so. I mean, although this is going to change over time, in part because countries like China and India are growing at a dramatic rate. As a result, you know, if you project towards the future, it's going to be a more multipolar world out there. You're going to have more large economies out there. And as a result, not surprisingly, China and India are going to demand a greater voice when it comes to questions of our regulation. Although we should consider that even now, even in the past week alone, there have been regulatory disputes between the United States and China over treatment of pharmaceuticals, over the amount of lead contained in children's jewelry, these kinds of things. And to some extent, China's pretty much going to have to bend to the United States on this point, in large part because they're so dependent on their exports to the United States that they would prefer compliance to the alternative. You argue that great powers like the United States and the EU continue to establish the rules that other actors follow, but you also acknowledge that smaller states or emerging markets such as China and India do have an impact. What is the nature of that impact? At present, and again, in the future, I think you can treat them as great powers, but at present, sort of other states out there can affect the process through which global governance is going to take place, but not necessarily the outcome. Let me give you an example, which was the Asian financial crisis and the reaction to it. When the Asian financial crisis took place, the reaction of both the United States and the European Union was, we need to have better standards when it comes to prudential supervision and regulation of financial institutions. In other words, there needs to be better regulation of banks, insurance companies, what have you. 
As a result, the U.S. and the EU decided, well, let's create these standards. Now, the natural place to have done this would have been the International Monetary Fund, which you would think would be somewhat dominated by the U.S. and G7 partners. The interesting thing is that, in fact, the United States and the EU basically created a new forum called the Financial Stability Forum that basically cut out most of the Pacific Rim economies and most of the developing world, because even within the IMF, because it's a universal membership organization, there was resistance and it would have created problems. So instead, the United States created this new organization, had the rules created there, and then went back to the IMF to have the IMF monitor and surveil these kinds of standards. So the opposition of smaller states forced the United States and the European Union to shift fora. It did not, however, stop the United States and the European Union from ratcheting up standards. Do you want to address any of the points brought up by the other scholars in their response essays? I think they make some very interesting points, and you know, I, I certainly don't claim that I have a monopoly of truth on this. I think Anne Florini makes a valid point in suggesting that non-governmental organizations, NGOs, do have some agenda-setting power when it comes to global regulation. And as she points out, the exception to the trade-related intellectual property rights in the Doha Declaration is something that would potentially contradict my story. I actually have a chapter about this in All Politics is Global that points out that this is an exception, but it's not a long-lasting one. You know, Jeremy Rabkin brings up an interesting question about whether or not these sorts of proliferation of global governance structures will cause states to be sort of enmeshed in these kinds of things. I think that's an interesting possibility, although my suspicion is that these sorts of arrangements like the WTO are more the conscious creation of states rather than sort of states are much less passive, I think, than Rabkin suggests. And Cal Rastiala has an interesting argument about whether or not the sort of proliferation of global governance structures, what the long-term normative effects are on all of this. And it's something I don't address terribly much in the book, and it's sort of food for thought going forward. Not to throw you completely off topic, but this is a subject that I think touches on what we've been talking about. Hasn't September 11, an attack perpetrated by non-state actors, vastly changed the rules of international security cooperation and the way that governments address asymmetrical threats? It's definitely a challenge. I actually think that questions about 9-11 are somewhat consistent with the book because to some extent, one thing that all states have in common is they don't like challenges to their authority, and al-Qaeda certainly represents a challenge to their authority. So... And in dealing with terrorism, a lot of the issues that have come up have basically been regulatory questions. When do governments have the power to take a look at passenger data on airlines? When can they look at banking exchange data as a way of cracking down on terrorist financing? There's a whole variety of regulatory questions that come up in a global war on terrorism. And I would actually say the model does reasonably well at predicting when there was going to be relatively significant amounts of cooperation and when there aren't. And how do you make predictions based on that model? Well, I mean, basically, the more that you talk about the state encroaching on what are considered core values, particularly Europe as the other player, there's going to be less and less coordination. So not surprisingly, for example, when it comes to passenger data or data privacy on the Internet, Europe has resisted quite strongly any moves by the U.S. to try to sort of globalize these kinds of regulations. On the other hand, in terms of cracking down on terrorist financing, there's been significant degrees of cooperation. Going forward, basically, you know, when you actually talk about core military stuff, the more you demand that militaries try to adjust what they're going to do, militaries to some extent are the most powerful interest group out there. And so in all likelihood, they're going to resist these kinds of coordination efforts to their dying breath. So to wrap it up, globalization, according to you, is not a transformative phenomenon, but it's important not to overlook its influence. 
It is. Yeah, the other thing that I point out in the book is that globalization certainly increases the rewards for regulatory coordination, which is when regulations are a residual impediment, if you can actually coordinate them or have mutual recognition or have some other sort of arrangement, it allows for greater transactions across borders, and that presumably yields benefits to both sides. Thank you, Professor. And thank you, as always, for listening to Cato Daily Podcast. For more information on Cato, please visit our website, www.cato.org.